Good morning once again. Where do you think we ought to turn today? Any ideas? Any, um, we take requests sometimes. Romans? We've been in the book of Romans now for a year and a half, and we're in chapter 10, which means I've done a much faster job than Martin Lloyd-Jones, who took 13 years from, uh, I don't know what it was, 1953 to 67 or something, something like that. But um, we're in chapter 10, finally. It's a great chapter. I have a lot of history in preaching from this, which I'll talk about today. Um, I'll bring to a sermon I put together some years ago, but um, let's go before the Lord this morning. Father, we ask... Oh, Father, don't leave your servant alone in the pulpit, for I cannot do this job on my own, O oh Lord. But fill me with the power and the joy of the Holy Spirit that comes from proclaiming your word. And Father, bless this congregation to be edified by this, the proclamation of your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we, we began in chapter 10 last week, and this morning I'm going to Read verses 13 through 15. And so Paul writes to the Romans, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, that is the whole message. We can close the book and go home now. But I think we ought to learn more about who this Lord is that we're calling upon. And that's the whole point of the passage this morning. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved... How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Father, in Jesus' name, bless this. The proclamation, the exposition of your holy word, preserved down through the ages for our edification this morning, and we pray you would be glorified by our services, Lord. Amen. And so verse 13, as I said, says it all. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I really worked that over last week. We'll move on from there. But I preached this message for the first time at a Bible conference many years ago, it was 2012 in fact, at the Grace Bible Church in East Bridgewater where our friend, my personal friend, uh, Dr. Borelli was, um, was pastoring at the time and there were six local pastors there and we all came in and our assignment was to take a piece of the book of Romans and to um, um, build upon it and preach from it and we got to choose which section and this is the section I, that I chose um, and so I spoke on the subject of preaching. Paul is extolling preaching as the ancient and modern vehicle for getting the gospel across. So, as I remember, I think I was the last to preach. Maybe, maybe uh, Pastor Borelli was, but when it was my turn to preach, this is what I observed. That so far in the conference, 
we had heard a lot about the gospel. We had seen and heard what the gospel is. We saw its power. We saw its beauty. We saw the beauty of sacrifice. We saw the power of election, the reality of substitution. Christ substituted himself for us on the cross. That should have been us nailed to the cross, but he substituted himself. He became the divine substitute for our sin and thereby paid the price of it for us. These themes in any context can be beautiful, and certainly they are, and we revel in these themes. But how much more beautiful and sublime are such things as sacrifice and substitution when they involve the Son of God than when they're just naked concepts before us? So the gospel is all these things to the believer. We may say that the gospel is everything to us. And it occurs to me that there comes a time in our lives when the Lord drives that home to us. You know, I thought about, I, I might amend something that I said recently that caused a little bit of a stir. I even talked about it yesterday, and it came to me again this morning as I woke up. You remember I stood here some weeks ago and I said, it seems like we're living too long. Now, that's a disturbing thought because we all want to be healthy and, you know, live long and look good. In fact, we don't care if we live long, we just want to look good. And... um you know, you see people at the end of life, and they're the last one in their family, and they've lost the spouse, they've lost the loved one. Sometimes they've even lost some of their children. All their friends are gone, and there they are, and they just don't want to be here anymore. And I thought it would be better for us just to go home, or if we don't know the Lord, some of them just feel as though they have nothing. But, you know, really, when I think of it, in a context of faith, and you're in those last days, that last season of life, those late years of your life, when you feel alone, when you feel bereft and abandoned, it could really be a gift of God that finally you're just alone with him and the gospel, and it becomes real to you, and it becomes yours in a way it never was before. And it could be, it could be that the pastor was wrong, I don't admit that often, but it could be I overlooked the obvious. And so I bring that to you this morning. Sometimes it's in life, it's, we're going to come to a place where it's just us and the gospel, and what am I going to do about it? And I say that in those times, do not be the one that doesn't come out to hear the preaching. Because the preaching is what makes the gospel real to you. The gospel has a voice, and I'll talk about that voice this morning. So if we all know what the gospel is, if we have all these preachers at the conference telling us what it is, why do we have a whole conference to define this thing that we all know so well? Why do we need to query such fundamental subjects to Christian as the gospel of Christ by which we are saved. Why do we need to go over it again and again? Shouldn't such things be obvious to us and we just move on from them? Well, maybe we go back to the subject because the church at large, from time to time in history, and you see it through the history of the Old Testament people of Israel, that they lose sight of the gospel. 
And so the church can lose sight of some of the most fundamental aspects of the gospel and gospel preaching. And you hear it in the speech of our fellow Christians sometimes. The gospel seems like they forgot about the importance of it. They forgot about who they are in Christ. So we have a whole conference to remind ourselves. Maybe we fear that lest we take caution, we too could lose sight of its purpose and its beauty and its power and its perfection. The gospel is the word of God, the logos in the Greek, who John tells us is in the beginning with God. Friends, the gospel was always there. It is not plan B. It is not an afterthought. It was in the beginning with God. It was the word, the logos. I think most of us would agree that the gospel is that profound kernel of truth embedded within the whole counsel of God, containing in concentrated form the most basic saving truth that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so we see that the gospel is the most basic saving truth. We can hardly conceive another. And that truth says to us, from Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who have called upon the name of the Lord and walk in the Spirit of God. And so we see in this the great inclusivity of the gospel, that everyone who's called is not condemned, but given eternal life. Or maybe we see the truth which says from that same chapter, But if anybody does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And so at the same time that we see the great inclusivity of the gospel, we see the great exclusivity of it. It is only for those who walk according to the Spirit of Christ. Or we may turn to the truth which says of our redemption that it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We do not save ourselves. And in this we see the author of the gospel. And the blessing it is to those who have humbly received it as the only saving truth. So confront the gospel. I hope you'll confront it with me this morning. Verse 14, the first part of it. How then shall they call on him who they have not believed? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, but how shall we call if we haven't believed? And so Paul builds this argument of rhetorical questions, which is his delight to do. So we tend to equate the gospel with the coming of Christ. Yet the gospel of Christ is so much more ancient than the coming of Christ and the apostles. It was always there, as we've seen. We read from Galatians what Paul wrote to them. He said, The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. That's 2,000 years before Christ walked the earth. He preached the gospel. God preaches the gospel. So the gospel was there being preached in the beginning. It was there in Abraham's time. 
Long before the appearance of Jesus in the earth, the gospel was there. So the gospel is spoken of in Scripture from beginning to end. And if it is, why does it still remain so elusive to us? Why do we have a conference to try to recapture it? Why does the church seem to let it slip out of our hands from time to time? Why do wise men miss it and Bible scholars come away from their diligent studies without finding it? It does seem that the gospel, though a great treasure, is a most elusive treasure after all. It seems if we're not careful, we can lose sight of the gospel. We know that it is elusive because Jesus preached about it. He preached about how elusive the gospel is, how it can be lost. Jesus speaks of lost things. He said the gospel is like a lost coin. Remember? It's like a lost coin for which a woman diligently searches. She turns the house upside down until she finds it. It's like a priceless pearl, he said, a pearl of great price for which a person would sell all he had just to possess it. It's like a lost sheep for which a shepherd would risk all to retrieve it. Leave the 99 in the pasture and go and find the one lost sheep. Friends, the gospel is like a lost son for which a father would wait all his life to see return to him. And so when he finds the lost thing, when he finds the the coin or the pearl or the sheep or the brother or the son, he calls all his friends together for a conference to say what Jesus said to them. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Luke 15, 6. And then the Lord says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven for one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. So friends, the gospel is elusive. We can lose it. It can slip through our fingers. It can slip out of our place of first love. But when we find it, Believers are expected to rejoice. They are to come together around it. They are to sing praises to God that they found it. It becomes the subject of our conversation. It's what we love to discuss. We linger long after the service and we discuss the gospel. It's the hope for our children and our friends. There is no other hope. Why would there be more than one hope? Should the gospel be like the meat case at the grocery store? Where you go in and you look at all the different cuts of meat in the cellophane packages. They look so good and delectable. You can't choose one from them. It doesn't matter which one you choose. Your guests will love what, no matter what it is if you cook one. The gospel isn't like that. There's just one thing. And sometimes it's hidden. And sometimes it takes some mining and some excavation to get down to the core of it, to the the mother load of truth. But when we find it, it becomes the substance of our lives. It becomes the substance of our conversation. 
That's why I suppose that the feet of those who preach the gospel are said to be beautiful feet. The second part of verse 14 says, And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How shall they find this elusive thing that we now rejoice in? It does seem the Apostle Paul is on to something in his questioning here. The Apostle is stressing something that may not be simply incidental to finding and recognizing and embracing and being saved by the gospel. He's on to something that's not just incidental to the gospel. If the apostle is insistent upon anything to do with the gospel of Christ, it is that it is best received by hearing it. You could close your eyes and receive the gospel if you're hearing it. But do not close your ears to it. You dare not do that. The passage before us, friends, is not some obscure corner of the counsel of God. The idea of listening for God and for hearing Him is a theme from beginning to end in the Scriptures. I'll start with the end first. At the end of the Bible, the angel of the Lord says to John many times, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has ears to hear. It's really not a difficult concept, ears to hear. I mean, everyone has ears, but some people aren't there really to listen. You can have ears and not be listening. You know that. My wife says all the time, but but I already told you that. And I say, but you, you also tell me all the time I'm a husband, and husbands don't listen. Why are you surprised? I have ears to hear. I just don't always want to hear. Indeed, hearing is very important to faith. So listen up. Paul says in verse 17 of this chapter very, fa- very plainly that faith cometh by hearing. Faith comes by hearing, friends. And so hearing is important to God, even to the very end of the Scripture, to the book of Revelation. It's important in the middle, in the book of Romans, as we can see. And so it has been important since the very beginning. Remember Adam? Remember Adam. He listened for the footsteps of the Lord in the garden, in the cool of the day. Don't forget to go out in the cool of the day and look for the Lord and listen for his footsteps. And so Adam heard the footsteps of the Lord. That was the gospel approaching. I know that this platform resonates really well on the, on the uh, recording. So the Savior called out and he said, Adam, where are you? Genesis 3.9. Now, you... you Now, the Savior knew where he was. He knew what had happened. And later he even said to him, Have you eaten of the tree that I said thou shalt not eat? So there's Adam. He hears the footsteps. He hides from the Lord. And then what did Adam say? I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid. Why was he afraid? The gospel saving. He was afraid because he's doing the wrong thing. The gospel comes at most inconvenient times into your life. 
You were busy offending me. You were busy sinning against me. You were busy providing the foundation by which I have to now sacrifice my son to get you back. You ought to be afraid. The gospel preached inspires in us the fear of God, and it ought to. The gospel was heard that day for the very first time. The Lord, the Logos, the Word, the voice of God preached the gospel in the garden. And isn't it interesting that the first to hear the gospel would be the serpent, the deceiver. He received the gospel first. He received a different gospel than we receive. Well, he received the other side of the same gospel. The gospel is both a blessing and a curse. It's both saving and condemning. It does both. That's why Adam was fearful to talk to the Lord. All the days up to that, we don't know how long that was. That could have been hundreds or thousands of years. We have have no way of knowing. But up to all those times, Adam probably delighted. He delighted in hearing the footsteps of the Lord, but not this day. This day he was doing the wrong thing, and he had to hide from the Lord, lest he come to the light and his deeds be exposed. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. You shall crawl on your life. You shall crawl all your life, rather. You shall eat dust, and so on. I suppose it could be said that that the serpent received the first gospel sermon in history. And then to the woman, she received the second one. I'll greatly multiply your sorrow. Your husband shall rule over you. That could be sorrowful for some. (laughs) Stop shaking your head. And then to the man, he said, Cursed is the ground you walk on. Labor and toil in it all the days of your life. He doesn't give one word of retirement. He says, all your life you'll labor and toil. And you'll strive for everything you need and then die and return to the ground from which you were made. Now I have often made the point in my preaching that the gospel, in fact, all of religion, false and true, is about death. If we weren't going to die, we wouldn't need to be here. We'd have all of eternity to figure it out. But there's a shelf life to us, isn't there? There's a sell-by date. There's a spoil-by date, right? And we don't know what the date is. And so all religion, false and true, is about death and speculation about what happens when it comes. But the Bible doesn't speculate. We have it directly from the Logos. That if you call upon the name of the Lord, thou shalt be saved. If we did not die, we would not need religion, neither would we need a gospel of life. And so the gospel of God was a fearful thing, friends. It was a prophetic thing. It prophesied death and decay and corruption. But then the Lord added to the message. He spoke of life once again. And he said, Behold, the man has come like one of us to know good and evil And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. But he guarded the tree of life 
You couldn't just walk up to it this time and disobey. He placed an angel with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. And that angel is still there. And the only way to that tree of life is to come and show that the blood of Christ is upon you. So the gospel was a promise. But it was a guarded and elusive reality. And so the gospel was not known until it was preached. The way to life, that there even was a way to life, was not known until it was heard. Could it be that our postmodern, excessively visual world, that our insistence upon seeing can actually blind us to knowing the gospel of Christ. I have wondered about this. I think all this visual stimuli is a satanic plot to get us to not hear anymore and not want to hear. Seeing is enough for us. We're a generation that loves to receive our information from visual sources. We want the world to be visual. We want it to be in living color, they used to say. We want our world action-packed, three-dimensional, multifaceted, fast-paced. Seems to me that our society and perhaps the church at large is in danger of becoming like those people who camp out overnight for the next Apple product. But you don't find them camped out in the church parking lot waiting for the Lord's Day to arrive, do you? We're in danger of becoming what our times would have us become. Friends, you ready for this? It's a fearful word. I don't usually use this word on a Sunday morning. Progressive. New and improved. Or as it used to say on our cereal boxes, fortified with eight essential vitamins. Yet the gospel is still best received by those who hear it. We would like our gospel to come with special effects. I think we might have missed what Elijah the prophet did not miss. And why didn't he miss? Because when the special effects came, he waited. He waited for the voice. He waited to hear the gospel preached by God. He was alone on a mountain, feeling bereft and forgotten and betrayed and abandoned and crying out to God that he alone was faithful. There was no one but him. I am left. All have left you, Lord. Yet the gospel of God was with him if only he would listen for it. If only he would wait for the special effects and the light show to get over. And so this is what we read from 1 Kings 19. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, wind and earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire came the still, small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And then we read, suddenly a voice came to him. And the Lord corrected his prophet. I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not 
bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So there's a remnant in Israel. There's always a remnant. There will always be a remnant who have heeded the gospel and called upon the name of the Lord. There will always be. And so the gospel, presumed by the prophet to be lost, was yet alive, but not until it was preached. Others waited for it, listened for it, and were blessed by it. Seeing was a definite distraction from hearing, which was necessary for faith, for instruction in righteousness, for encouragement, and for further direction from God. And so the third part of verse 14 says, Then how shall they hear? How then shall they hear without a preacher? So we have before us a question. What is the gospel if it's not preached? What is the gospel if it's not preached? You know, churches are trying to improve on the preaching thing. We don't like it. We don't like preaching because it's authoritative. We don't like authority. We're the authority in our lives. But what's the gospel apart from preaching? And why preach if it's not authoritative? Why preach if it doesn't come from God and mean what it says? And say that nothing else but this means what it says. How shall it be heard if it's not preached? Let's make one initial observation about the text before we go on any further. The questions are rhetorical. The answers are obvious, right? He doesn't really expect us to say, well, here's another way we could hear it without it being preached. We have a premise. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The premise is simple enough. And then the teaching begins with this series of rhetorical questions. We read, how shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And then we come to the subject of preaching, the subject that I am trying to treat today. How shall they hear without a preacher? So as we keep in mind the rhetorical nature, you know what I mean by that, right? The answers are obvious to us. Paul's not waiting for an answer. He's not calling for suggestions. He's not urging the church to form another committee, the ATP committee, the Alternatives to Preaching Committee. I really believe churches have had Alternatives to Preaching Committees. Get rid of the pulpit. It's too offensive. Put a little plexiglass thing there and a little stool, maybe a guitar, and we'll sing the gospel to you. The apostle never expected that there was any doubt that the rhetorical, obvious answer to the question would be anything but they shall not hear without a preacher. And who are the preachers? Are you the preachers? I'm going to get to that. And if they do not hear, they will not believe. And if they do not believe, they cannot call upon God for their salvation. And if they can't call upon God for their salvation, they're condemned for eternity. So ask yourself this. Is it possible for a thing to exist without it being known to exist? Let me help you with this, all right? If the tree falls in the forest, does it make a noise? The answer is yes, it does. And the chicken preceded the egg, and we have all the answers. We know all these. These are not conundrums. We follow the science because we're the church. 
Actually, I should say we follow the science because we're the Protestant church. (laughs) Is it possible for a thing to exist without it being known to exist? Of course it can. It happens all the time to evolution scientists. They search for evidence of the existence of an extinct species of animal only to find that the animal's still thriving in the Amazon region or the African plains. Their thesis was wrong. The thing existed, they just didn't know, so they told us it was extinct. Things exist all the time without being known to exist. And it seems Paul was dedicated to keeping the gospel known by giving it voice, by keeping it active, by calling on everyone to proclaim it. Preaching is necessary to the gospel. It's impossible to think of the gospel apart from preaching. What's the gospel if no one proclaims it? We might just as well try to imagine a body without a soul or a creation without a creator. As though it could possibly exist without the other. The gospel without preaching is like sacrifice without sanctification. It's like a message with no one to carry the message. Or the worship of God apart from the love of God. Worship is just the expression of the love we have for God. Proskuneo. It means to bend, pros, and kuneo, to kiss. Proskuneo. Judas, or Jude rather, spoke of the false teachers. His name was Judas, by the way. Um, He called them late autumn trees without fruit, the false teachers. Peter said, they're wells without water, spots on your love feast. We may think of Adam, the first man, as the symbol of the gospel. Have you ever thought of that? Lifeless man formed in clay, but still without life, because he had not the breath of God breathed in him to animate him. The gospel is the breath of God in a dead thing. We may think of the breath of God breathed into the man as the gospel delivered. And so God formed Adam from the clay. And he took his hands and he pressed the eye sockets. And he formed the cheeks and the chin of the man. But he was nothing but a clay statue. Until the Lord leaned over and put his face over the mouth and nose of his clay man. And gave him breath. And as the man's eyes opened for the first time, he saw the face of God receding from his face, and he had life. The breath of God is life. The gospel, apart from this life-giving breath, this preaching, is like the prophet Ezekiel, transported in a vision, remember, to the great valley of dry bones, where there was once life. Yet there was no life. And there they are. The human race strewn dead on the countryside. Or maybe a great army fallen in battle. Or a great civilization that fell into ruin. The children of Israel who died for lack of hearing. And he gets the vision of all this death. This mass grave strewn about the desert. It's the glory of man which always falls to dust. You want to find out about the ancient glories of man? You must dig in the dust for evidence that he even existed. 
and he may only be known by his ruins. For the glory of man always comes to ruin, but the glory of God is in the gospel. And if someone will preach it, it'll be glorious yet again. So God commands the prophet. He doesn't say, go out onto the countryside and massage the bones. He doesn't say, lay hands on the bones. He doesn't say, entertain the bones. <laughs> Perform miracles for the bones. God tells the prophet simply to speak to the bones. And say to these bones, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And with his words, the sinews of flesh begin to form upon the bones. And they have appearance again of former glory. <coughs> they have appearance again. <coughs> Excuse me. Of former glory. Yet they're still dead. And the prophet complains to the Lord. Lord, there's no breath in them, the Lord says to him. And so the Lord said, then prophesy to the breath. Speak to the wind. He says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so the gospel goes out to dead things to animate them and to give them the glory of life renewed. The gospel is to call dead things to life, to breathe new life into them. Behold, the Lord said that day, I will open the graves and cause you to come up from your graves. I'll put my spirit in you and you shall live and you shall know that I, the Lord, have what? Spoken. The Lord calls dead things to life. I said to you last week that I would develop my hypotheses on the biblical call to preach. You see, there is a call to preach. My first call is the call that we all have to preach. I'm calling it the Ezekiel principle. Perhaps you've heard me speak of it. Don't look it up in your um, New Testament terms lexicon because I made it up and it's not in there. The Ezekiel principle there is the call for special messengers, pastors and preachers, evangelists. I'm going to call this the Jeremiah principle. Now, if you're wondering about your personal call to preach, I would ask you to turn with me to Ezekiel. I'm going to turn to Ezekiel chapter 3 and read for you the passage that contains the Ezekiel principle of preaching. Ezekiel chapter 3. The principle of old Zeke. Verse 18. <clears throat> well, verse 17, God says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. He's telling the prophet, you're a watchman. Friends, we are watchmen of our brothers. We are our brother's keeper. Don't be like Cain. And so it's written, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand, because you didn't tell him what you knew. 
Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. You've done what the Lord gave you life to do. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you did not give him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. We do have a responsibility to preach the gospel to those in our path who we see are in sin. Even the righteous must be warned not to sin or to live in it. It seems to me this advice is for every believer who confronts a needy soul that God has put in his path. As I've said, we are our brother's keeper. The principle is clear, and I hope it's familiar to us. Now, you may say, and you could be right, that this prompting is just for the prophet. He's a special messenger. It's just for him. This is not, that responsibility doesn't fall to me. You might reason that way. Perhaps it's for all prophets. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's only for preachers, but not a requirement for everyone who believes. And I've heard it argued that way. And I can see some sense in that. And so I can say to you, you might be right. Maybe it's not your responsibility. Maybe the Ezekiel principle is a false principle that I made up. Maybe this prompting is only for some and not for you. But I can tell you that Paul didn't think that about the Ezekiel principle. Paul thought of it as being, as being a universal principle for every believer. We may remember that though God said this to Ezekiel and not to Paul, that Paul held himself to this standard. When Paul was in Corinth, we read, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now you know that's not a convenient thing to do. The gospel, don't wait for it to be convenient. It's just not. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, Luke writes, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own head. I've preached the gospel to you. I'm going to the Gentiles. You see, he embraced the Ezekiel principle. He knew it was for all of us. God holds us each responsible to deliver the gospel to a perishing world. Some clear examples of this. The woman at the well. She's just a woman at a well and a sinner. <clears throat> the woman then left her water pot, we read, went her way into the city, and said to the man, Come see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So she took it upon herself. When she saw the power, the efficacy of the gospel, she brought it to other people. And what about the blind man who Christ healed? <clears throat> he said to the doubters, why, this is a marvelous thing. You do not know where he, was from, where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. He goes on, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes 
of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And then what did they do to him? Verse 34, and they cast him out. You don't get accolades very often for preaching the gospel. Even the blind man, who they knew all his life was blind, and they went to his parents, remember? And they said, well, we're not going to say anything because we don't want to be ostracized. Being cast out of the synagogue was not like you leave the church today and go to another one. You know, they didn't allow that kind of stuff. You were ostracized from society. And the parents were fearful of being ostracized, although they were rejoicing. Their son received his sight. And they said, he's of age. Go ask him. Let him preach the gospel. I want no part of it. It could go badly. And they cast him out for preaching the gospel. The point is, though, he did preach it. He saw that it was his responsibility. My second principle is for those called to dedicate their lives to preaching. This principle is for preachers, and I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah, what's that? No, it's that, yeah, it's, it's a misprint. It's a, there's a misprint in your notes. Um, it's chapter 20, I have it right here. Um, so turn to Jeremiah chapter 20. Now, just to show you how inconvenient the gospel is, I'm going to start from verse 1. Now, Pasher, the son of Immer, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. And Pasher struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. In other words, everyone could walk by and see Jeremiah in the stocks for preaching, right? And it happened on the next day that Pasher brought Jeremiah out of the stocks, and Jeremiah said to him, The Lord has not called your name, Pasher, but Magar Misabib. Magar Misabib, which means fear on every side. <laughs> For he told him, You gave yourself the name Pasher, but the Lord calls you fear on every side. In verse 4, <clears throat> For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. Nobody wanted to hear that gospel that day. Moreover, I'll deliver all the wealth of this city, all its produce and all its precious things and all the treasures of the kings of Judah. I will give into the hand of their enemies who will plunder them, seize them, carry them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. False gospel. They take him out of the stocks on display and ridicule like the Lord, and he still can't help but tell them what they don't want to hear. And then Jeremiah says this, and this is the Jeremiah principle. O Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You were stronger than I and have prevailed. In other words, you made me preach. I'm in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, the prophet says, I will not make mention of you anymore. 
nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire. Shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. That's for preachers. So if you're called by special providence to an office in the church, neither you nor your wife nor other church members nor the persecuting public will be able to stop you from preaching. In a sense, you have a very great problem and no problem at all. Preaching will break out and power will go forth from you. It doesn't exempt you from the persecutions of the prophet. But that I can't help you. Verse 15b, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So I've added the last principle. I've always had it there, but I named it. It's called the Peter Principle. Does anyone, has anyone ever heard of the Peter Principle? Because there is a Peter Principle. It, it's about uh, big companies. Um, generally, they, they've been studied for, um, you know, for uh, efficiency and such things. And uh, a, a great uh, sociologist, I don't know, in the 19th century, Dr. Peters, found out that a man will usually get promoted to his level of incompetence. You, you, you familiar with that? The Peter Principle. So that's not my Peter Principle. That has nothing to do with this. So turn with me to John 21 for this last principle. And I'll close with the Peter principle this morning from John 21. Perhaps you've heard of the Peter principle. John 21, beginning at verse 15, we read, So when they had eaten breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Again, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. That's the Peter principle. I learned it at a funeral for a friend. One by one, friend after friend, brother, wife, mother, son, ascended the pulpit. This was an old friend's funeral many years ago. And each beloved voice surprised me more and more as each became more eloquent than the last. And these are just friends, relatives, not speakers, right? To my great surprise, common people, people I had known all my life, became the most gracious, articulate, poetic, beautiful, exceptional, endearing speakers. Every one of them became a truly great speaker. That's the Peter principle. I realized a life-changing principle for any preacher. 
the one prerequisite to preaching, the sole virtue, the singular characteristic of effective preaching that the speaker must have is a great love for the person about whom he is speaking. That's all they had was love. And what came with the love? Knowledge of the person came with the love. You don't say, you know, I I really love you, but I have no desire to know anything else about you. No one ever says that. Real love is a searching love. I'm thinking of an old commercial. I think it was a perfume commercial on television with Sophia Loren. Maybe you're old enough to remember it. To truly love a woman is to never stop discovering her. (laughs) Who knew? She was preaching the gospel. Hallelujah. I didn't know Sophia Loren was Pentecostal. But I realize a life-changing principle for any preacher that you must have a great love for the one about whom you are speaking. If you have a great love for Christ, you will be an eloquent speaker for his cause, and you will be hungering to know more and more about him and his characteristics and his mercies and the gospel. Love Christ and you'll be an eloquent spokesman for his cause. Your love will propel you to discover him more deeply. You'll pray as a beloved brother, son, disciple, sister, daughter. You'll meditate on his attributes if you love him. Your love for Christ is the only force in heaven or earth that qualifies you to speak on him. Can you imagine speaking of him without love? We hear it all the day. We hear it in our lives. People say, Jesus Christ, and that's not out of love. It's unthinkable to me. It's a form of blasphemy that a person would presume to speak of Christ, to preach his gospel, who's not under the spell of a deep devotional love for him. It's unthinkable. And so I'll paraphrase the words of Paul, which say, Woe is me if I do not love Christ. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Oh, Father, let these words sink down into our hearts. Let us be nourished by this, the pure milk of the unadulterated gospel of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.